Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 28, Three Popes with One Stone. Now in today's episode we will witness the very beginnings of what Norman Cantor described as the first of the three world revolutions. We are laying the foundations to that moment that Tom Holland compares to the crossing of the Rubicon or the storming of the Bastille. An event that shaped Western Europe into its own specific narrative that led it to get ahead of civilizations far older and far more sophisticated than its own. History would call this the Gregorian Reform, though it starts well before Pope Gregory VII and Gregory VII was by no means its intellectual leader. And, like many great revolutions, it starts with something the significance of which is overlooked by contemporaries. Remember that Louis XVI's diary entry for the 14th of July 1789 reads as rien, nothing. Well, in the case of the Gregorian reform, it starts with something that would be hard to overlook completely, but with something we have seen many times before in the history of the Germans podcast. It is a standard expedition to Rome to acquire the imperial crown. Henry III's intention was in all likelihood to cruise down to Rome, get crowned during the now traditional winter months and be back across the Alps before the malaria season starts. That is what his father Conrad II and his predecessor Henry II had done. Neither of these had any interest in getting embroiled in Roman affairs. They all remembered Otto III and how that had ended. In October 1046, Henry III arrives in the capital of the Lombards, Pavia where he holds a synod. He could travel with just his bodyguard. The last seven years he had made good decisions as regards Italy. It started with his successful mediation in the Milanese uprising we had discussed in episode 26. He had appointed sensible bishops who supported the reform of the church and where he had made a mistake, he reversed that decision quite quickly. The Italians were glad to see him and regarded him as a good, if mainly absent, overlord. In November, he meets the current Pope, Gregory VI, in Piacenza to hammer out the details of the upcoming coronation. Things are fine and both Pope and Emperor treat each other with the respect their offices afford. Sometime after this meeting, Henry III has concerns. The more he hears about the way Gregory VI has been elevated to the throne of St. Peter, the more he wonders whether his coronation would be valid. To understand his concerns, as well as the background to our much bigger story, I need to bring you up to speed with the history of the papacy. The last time we've seriously talked about Rome was in the last years of Otto III, the young emperor who dreamt of a renovation of the Roman Empire with its actual capital in the actual city of Rome. Otto III had appointed two popes, first Gregory V, one of his closest relatives, and then his tutor and spiritual counsellor, Gregory of Aurillac, who took the name of Sylvester II. Gregory V and Sylvester II had tried to clean up the papacy, which for hundreds of years had been the plaything of the Roman gangster aristocrats, and had failed to project any spiritual leadership outside the contado of the city of Rome. Sylvester II had tried to bring the ancient two-sword theory into practice, on this theory, the Pope yields the spiritual power and the Emperor the secular power. Pope and Emperor are to work in unison at spreading the word of Christ and preparing the peoples for the coming of the Antichrist. He worked tirelessly at improving the moral and educational standards of the clergy, the papal administration and the ecclesiastical authority. 
but Sylvester II only lasted a year after Otto III had died in 1002. As soon as Otto III had left Rome, John Crescentius had taken control over the Holy City. John Crescentius was the son of Crescentius II, the man Otto III had executed on the roof of Castel Sant'Angelo and whose body was hung upside down from the gallows of Monte Mario. Unsurprisingly, John Crescentius did not like the Germans very much. Like other secular rulers of the city of Rome before him, he appointed a string of tame popes. John Seventeenth, John Eighteenth, and Sergius V, who did, as far as I can see, pretty much nothing of note. The only thing they did was refuse to crown the empress, which is why Henry II took his time to come down. John Crescentius died in 1012, probably of natural causes. And with his death, the Crescenti rule of Rome ended. They were replaced by the other leading family in Rome, the Theophylacts, who were also the Counts of Tusculum. They had graced papal history with such impeccable spiritual leaders like the Senatrix Mariazza and the debauched child Pope John XII. The intervening years in the wilderness had turned the Theophylacts into battle-hardened warriors. To avoid the whole malarkey of having to find a suitable prelate to be a pet pope, Count Gregory of Tusculum decided to do the job himself. He gets ordained as priest and elevated to the See of St. Peter on the same day, and he takes the name of Benedict VIII. Benedict VIII was actually a competent administrator and soldier. He mended the relationship with the empire and crowned Henry II in 1014. He even travelled to Bamberg to consecrate Henry II's magnificent new cathedral. Now, when Benedict VIII died, his brother had to pick up the job. Another same-day ordination election and elevation takes place. This Tusculum count took the name of John Nineteenth. Things continued pretty much as before. John Nineteenth crowned Conrad II in one of the most splendid and best-attended coronations of the Middle Ages. He does, however, pursue a slightly more independent policy from the Empire. In 1032, the next Count of Tusculum ascends the throne, Benedict IX, nephew of John Nineteenth and Benedict VIII. He was quite young, probably 18 or 20, when he became leader of Christianity. There are some chroniclers who claim he was only 12 years old when he was elevated, that he indulged in rape and murder, and that he displayed homosexual tendencies. Though all that is likely imperial propaganda. But even 20 is not really an age when one should become Pope. It is therefore likely that his personal conduct fell somewhat short of the moral demands of the office. Be that as it may, the Emperor did not care as long as Benedict IX pursued a generally imperial-friendly policy. And that he did. He even joined Conrad II during his campaign in southern Italy in 1038. Things get complicated for him in 1044. A new aristocracy in Rome is emerging that challenges the traditional mafia oligarchy that had ruled the city since the 9th century. The upstarts throw Benedict IX out and bring in a new pope, Sylvester III. By 1045, Benedict IX is back. For reasons that are somewhat unclear, he then decides that the papacy is not really for him, and he sells it to a gentleman called John Gratian. That sale is not propaganda. That actually happened. John Gratian takes the title of Gregory VI and is the Pope our friend Henry III encounters in November 1046 in Piacenza. News trickled through that Gregory VI had paid to become Pope. 
which constitutes the sin of simony. That causes a serious problem for Henry III. If Gregory VI had indeed acquired the papacy in such a crass, blatant manner, then what is any of the sacraments worth he will be conducting? Could he, Henry III, be taking part in a sinful act if he had himself crowned by a pope whose foul act condemns him to eternal hellfire? He is now on theologically thin ice. And to say it in German, wenn ich nicht mehr weiter weiß, gründe ich einen Arbeitskreis, which loosely translates as, if I'm at a loss, I found a task force. That task force was the Council of Sutri in December 1046. Henry III convened the main churchmen of Italy, as well as the German church leaders who had accompanied on his journey. The assembled bishops easily dismissed Antipope Sylvester III as uncanonical. And when Gregory VI admitted to have bought the papacy in order to bring an end to the travesty that was the papacy of Benedict IX, that made this question easy. And Benedict IX did not even show up. So Henry III, in one fell swoop, deposed all three popes. He now needed a new one. And this time it had to be a proper churchman, who cleans up the mess the papacy had become. Henry III knew a lot of proper churchmen, all of whom were members of the German imperial church. He first asked Adalbert, Archbishop of Bremen-Hamburg and eternal scorn of the Saxons, but he refused. Bishop Sutger of Bamberg was more amenable and he made him Clement II on the spot. Clement II crowns Henry III and sends him back on his way home to avoid the malaria. But Clement II had to stay behind in Rome and dies of the disease within 10 months. Now the next volunteer on that suicide mission was Popo, Bishop of Brixen, who as Damasus II lasted for just 30 days before being taken down by the disease. In 1048 Henry appoints his cousin, Bruno, Bishop of Toul, to become Pope as Leo IX. Leo IX was made of sterner stuff, he lasts almost five years. These five years are a crucial time for the papacy and ultimately for European history. The first smart thing Leo IX does is to make his acceptance of the papal crown dependent on the consent of the Romans. That might not quite count as a free election since Leo arrives with a contingent of imperial soldiers, but he did show the Romans some respect, which they appreciate. He is also coming back to a city of Rome that has changed. Crescenti have died out and the Counts of Tusculum are on the run. The whole place is looking for a new equilibrium. But Rome is not the only place that matters. The new thing, the really new thing, is that the Pope is now appearing on an international stage. Leo IX will undertake three major journeys to Germany in his five-year reign, travel extensively across Italy and France, and will hold a total of 12 synods. The key topics of his synods were simony, the purchasing of holy offices, and the marriage of the clergy. Before Leo IX, these gatherings of German or Italian bishops were usually presided over by a king or emperor. Now the Pope takes a more hands-on role in managing the church. It begins a fundamental reform of the church infrastructure. That includes introducing the College of Cardinals as an administrative body. The College of Cardinals does not yet elect the Pope, but before, the cardinal was just a honorific title given to a priest of one of the major basilicas of Rome. 
Now, the cardinals get directly involved in the management of the global church. Furthermore, Leo paves the way to solve theological disputes using the new techniques of logic and dialectic that will ultimately become the scholastic method which will dominate European thinking in the High Middle Ages. The objective here is not just to make management as usual more effective. No, it is about driving fundamental change and reform. To understand the significance of Leo IX, we have to see his actions in the context of some major changes happening in the early 11th century. Now, the 11th century is not short of momentous change. For one, there is the dramatic rise of economic activity brought about by climate change, improved agricultural methods and the replacement of slavery with feudal obligations. The agricultural surplus allows for the creation of markets, trade and cities. People as a whole are wealthier. They are climbing up Maslow's pyramid, having much higher security of food and shelter than 150 years ago. That drives the demand for peace as defined as the absence of violence we discussed last episode. In areas where such security is provided, like in Germany and northern Italy, self-actualization becomes a more and more significant desire. In the 11th century, being the person you always wanted to be did not involve yoga, veganism or podcasting. What people wanted to do is live the right life, so that they would be chosen on the Day of Judgment. And the Day of Judgment was imminent, as a thousand years had passed since the Passion of Christ. We have encountered these extreme forms of piety amongst laymen already in the personalities of Otto III and Henry II. As the century progresses, more and more often, ordinary people feel the need to follow Christ's example without becoming priests or monks. They spend long time in religious devotion, they give money or their labor to the church, they help the poor, and in extremis embark on self-flagellation and wearing of hair shirts. Going on arduous pilgrimages to Rome or Jerusalem is no longer something only churchmen and holy hermits do. In 1034, Robert, Duke of Normandy, leaves his worldly possessions to his eight-year-old bastard son and goes on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he dies. In 1096, just ordinary people follow Pope Urban's call for a crusade, and set off on foot to Jerusalem, crossing Germany and the Balkans, before being sent to their certain death by the Byzantine Emperor. This rise in lay piety scared the Church no end. How can the Church maintain their moral authority in society when the flock lives more saintly lives than the vicars sent to lead them in prayer? At the same time, the laymen ask, how effective will prayer be if the prelate is bent? We have been talking about church reform several times before. Led by the Abbey of Cluny and the reform monasteries inside the empire, the church had responded. At the time of Henry II, monasteries were regularly reviewed as to their adherence to the rules of St. Benedict. Weakness in discipline usually meant, firstly, the priests and monks lived in relationships or even got married. Then secondly, the sin of simony, i.e. the buying or selling of holy offices, which usually led to number three, laziness, greed and incompetence. If weakness in disciplines are discovered, the abbot would be replaced and things were put right. The chronicler Hermann of Reichenau, himself a monk at the famous monastery, describes the process as follows. Quote, in Reichenau, on the death of Abbot Werner, the brethren elected the monk Henry. King Henry, that is our Henry II, loathed his arrogance 
although he had received money from him. Henry was hostile to the brethren, who had been subject of accusations in his presence. Against their will, he appointed to rule them a certain Immo, abbot of Gauze, a harsh man who at the time also held Prim. Some of the brethren therefore left the place on their own accord, and some of them were severely afflicted by him with fasts, scourges and exile. Thus the noble monastery suffered for its sins a heavy loss in great men, books and church treasures. Two years later, King Henry, after hearing at last of the cruelty of Immo, removed him and appointed Bern, a learned and pious man. He was joyfully received and gathered the scattered brethren together again. Unquote. This little story tells us not just about the effort going into the church reform, but also the degree of success. Leaving aside the hypocrisy that Henry II had taken money from the abbot-elect, but bringing Immo in and accepting a loss in the economic viability of a monastery as important as Reichenau was a considerable financial effort. However, it seems the measure did not achieve their ultimate goal, as Immo had to be removed. The new abbot presumably had to scale down standards to entice the brethren to return. Such ultimately half-hearted efforts failed to cut the mustard with the increasingly pious laymen. They were looking for more and for better. In the 1030s, the next iteration of church reform, call it Church Reform 2.0, took hold. This next generation of reformers had little in common with the grand abbots of Cluny. They revived the ancient tradition of hermits and holy men who had thrived in the Eastern Roman Empire since the 5th century. According to Norman Cantor, ascetics came back in fashion in Western Europe during the 11th century because now people had enough to eat. Before that, everyone was going hungry, making it hard to differentiate between a poor man and a saint. We have met some of these hermits already, unsurprisingly in the company of Otter III, the epitome of lay piety amongst early medieval rulers. There was St. Nilus, who accused the emperor of overreach when he had Christentius II cut to pieces and Pope John XVII mutilated and humiliated. Another was St. Romuald, who founded his own ascetic order. His motto was, Sit in your cell, as in paradise. Put the whole world behind you and forget it. Watch your thoughts like a good fisherman watching for fish. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. Now from this purely eremitic tradition, the community of Vallombrosa near Florence emerged. Their aim was to combine the ascetic eremitic lifestyle with life in the community, preaching the Gospels and doing good works. The rules for the Vallombrosians were much stricter than the traditional Benedictine rule and involved vows of silence, seclusion and poverty. It is out of these communities and spiritual traditions that two of the four most important Gregorian reformers come. The first one is St. Peter Damien, or Pietro Damiano. He was born an orphan of a noble but impoverished family. He was badly mistreated in his early youth before being taken in by a cousin who was a priest. Once his intelligence got noticed, he is sent to study theology and canon law at the cathedral schools of Ravenna and Parma. In Parma, he becomes a lecturer at the age of 25. He then joins the hermitage of Fonte Avalino, where he becomes prior in 1043. 
He will remain in this rule until the end of his life. Pietro Damiano embraces the life of an ascetic hermit enthusiastically and subjects himself to extreme forms of devotion and penitence, including regular flagellation, up to a point where he is near death. But the solitary life of a hermit is not really for him. His true passion is to meet people, to preach on street corners and squares, reaching out to the common man. In between excessive religious exercises and itinerant preaching, he gets involved in the controversies that shake the church in his time. He has a habit of sending out treatises, analyzing and judging ecclesiastical decisions. How well informed they are is a bit doubtful, since he constantly declares individuals as harbingers of a golden age, which includes the debauched Pope Benedict IX and the simonistic Gregory VI. The two sins he particularly focuses on are simony and licentiousness. Simony probably needs a bit of explanation. It is named after Simon the Sorcerer, who makes an appearance in the Deeds of the Apostles, chapter 8, verse 9 to 25. A sorcerer, as we all know, is a wizard without a hat. This Simon was, according to the account, a very successful sorcerer, with a large followership in Samaria. When he saw the Apostle Philip preach, he became a believer was baptized, and began to follow him around, amazed by all the great signs and miracles Philip performed. At one point, they were joined by the apostles Peter and John, who would bring down the Holy Spirit by placing their hands on the heads of the believers. Simon was mightily impressed by that and offered Peter and John money to learn this skill. He said that they should give him this ability so that everyone on whom he lays his hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter was not happy and answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. The interesting point about simony is that it's not a sin of bad intentions, but a sin of bad means. Simon the Sorcerer is not ill-disposed to the church. Au contraire, he wants to do good, he wants to spread the gospel and bring the Holy Spirit to the believers. His sin is that he wants to buy the skills needed, which shows that his heart is not right. Hence, when Gregory VI tried to justify his payments to Benedict IX with the argument that it was all for the good of the Church, the argument does not cut it. He may have the right intentions, but he uses the wrong means. We'll find out how important that distinction is in later episodes. Pietro Damiano wrote a long work on simony, how to define it and what its consequences are. The two important questions are, first, what constitutes the offer of money? In the case of Gregory VI, it's quite obvious. I pay you X to become Pope. But what about the customary payments of a new bishop or abbot that he has to pay to his liege lord? What about the other feudal obligations the abbot or bishop may have towards the king? And then there is the second important question, which is, are the sacraments performed by a seminaristic priest still valid? And is a priest ordained by a seminaristic bishop properly ordained, even if he's not seminaristic himself? And if that is the case, 
are his sacraments invalid as a fruit of the poison tree? Pietro Damiano writes three books on the subject, generally taking a pragmatic view. Where he's not pragmatic at all is on licentiousness. His argument was, not unreasonably, that a priest or bishop engaging in any kind of immorality undermines the authority of the church and would bring down the wrath of the pious laity onto them. He is particularly concerned about sexual relationships between priests and adolescent boys that were often covered up by their superiors. Plus ça change. But then he is a full-on rabid homophobe, promising fire and brimstone to men loving men. When you thought, maybe the guy is not so bad, well, then that thing comes out. The other thought leader of the Gregorian reform who appears in the 1040s is Humbert, usually called Da Silva Candida, after the church whose priest he was in Rome. He was a lot more dogmatic and radical than Pietro Damiano, in particular believed that all sacraments of seministic priests were invalid, including the acts of priests ordained by a seministic priest without being seministic themselves. He also firmly believed in a very wide definition of simony that included any involvement of the emperor in the election of bishops or abbots. I guess you get an idea what's going on here. The church is under pressure to improve its image. Reform has been ongoing for a long time, but the outcome is underwhelming against the backdrop of growing lay piety. That creates a room for new and revolutionary ideas about monastic life, priestly conduct, and ultimately the roles of temporal and spiritual power. And Pope Leo IX, cousin of Emperor Henry III, member of the Imperial Church, jumps right onto that bandwagon. Actually, the Emperor himself is massively in favour of this early reform. For Leo IX, Henry III, the mighty abbot of Cluny, and even for Pietro Damiano, there is no question whatsoever who should ultimately lead the reform effort. The Emperor. After 200 years of papal agony and irrelevance, there simply cannot be anyone else who has the moral and physical assets to push through major change. Ever since Otto the Great, the world had operated in what Norman Cantor called the early medieval equilibrium. The world and the church are one and the same. The rule of the world is in principle divided between the spiritual and the temporal, the pope and the emperor. But they are just two sides of the same coin. The emperor brings not just peace and justice in his own lands, he also promotes Christianity to far-flung pagan lands and looks after the spiritual well-being of his people. Him getting involved in theological debates or church reform is not meddling, it is part of the job. The Pope should in principle do the same. But in all protagonists' lifetime to date, never did any of it. Henry III was simply happy that his cousin was shouldering some of the work. A papacy that actually does something is new. Being present, living a moral life, and caring about the spiritual well-being of the people dramatically improves the standing of the papacy. That is why Leo IX is so important. His change in papal standing creates an alternative that simply did not exist before. The realm of the spiritual is managed well, there is less justification for an emperor to be involved. If we have a well-run church, why do we need a theocratic ruler who claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth? After Leo IX, the direct involvement of the emperor and church is no longer the natural state of affairs. 
the two sides of the metal are drifting apart. The other components that allow the two sides to drift apart is even less obvious to Leo IX and even more unexpected. It's the Normans. I told you in episode 25 that the Normans will appear in the narrative and that they matter like a lot. The Normans I talk about are not exactly the ones you probably think of right now. I'm talking about the Sicilian Normans. We are in the year 1048 now, 18 years before William the Conqueror set sail for the English coast. Normandy is the most tightly run state in Western Europe outside the empire. Like in the empire, central power is able to maintain order, prevent the construction of castles and stop the nobles from feuding. That is great for peasants but not great for the second, third, fourth and fifth sons of the Norman knightly class. One outlet for their ambition had been to take service as mercenaries in southern Italy. Southern Italy was a perennial mess, where Lombard dukes, Byzantine viceroys, independent cities and the emir of Sicily are tied up in incessant fighting. The Normans, the superheroes of the 11th century, show up from 999 onwards and everyone wants them in their army. Initially, they work for cold hard cash, but that is scarce, so they accept land and fiefs as payment. Conrad II, for the first time, enfiefs a Norman lord with the county of Aversa in 1030. And from there it goes bang, bang, bang. Ranulf of Aversa takes over the much bigger Capua. Then the Audeville brothers arrive. They were the sons of a Norman nobleman, Tancred of Audeville, who was largely famous for his extraordinary fecundity. He had allegedly five daughters and twelve sons. Five of those came to Sicily. The first to come to prominence was William, called Ironhand. The name came about when he decapitated the emir of Sicily with just one stroke of his sword. He becomes Count of Puglia in 1042 after taking it from the Byzantines. William and his brother Drogo then attacked Calabria. William died in 1046 and was succeeded by Drogo, who was murdered by a local mercenary. On whose orders, nobody knows. But there were still a lot of Oldville brothers left. The next count of Puglia was Humbert. Humbert picks up Bari and by now large parts of southern Italy is in the hands of various Norman lords, with Oldville family the most powerful. The rise of the Normans concerns Leo IX a lot. The last couple of hundred years the papacy's neighbours to the south were the Lombard princes of Benevent, Capua and Spoleto. These guys may be well armed, but spend most of the time fighting each other or the Byzantines or the Emir of Sicily, leaving the Pope well alone. Projecting the development of the last 15 to 20 years forward, Leo IX concluded that soon the Byzantines and Lombards would be gone and he would look down the barrel of a heavily armed force of Scandinavian giants. In 1053, Leo decides to act. Leo IX raises an army amongst the Lombards and northern Italians, supported by a small contingent of imperial troops. Near the town of Civitate in Puglia, the papal army meets the Norman forces, led by Humbert of Hauteville and another Hauteville brother called Robert Giscard, the Cunning. The Normans were outnumbered and undersupplied. The situation was so dire that Humbert asked for a truce, which Leo IX refused. When the two sides met, the Normans did, however, win unexpectedly. 
the Norman troops displayed the discipline and cohesion needed to hold the line, something the motley crew of papal allies sadly lacked. Only the imperial troops in the centre fought all the way to the end, but were ultimately defeated. Pope Leo IX was captured and brought to Benevento, which the Normans quickly annexed. Leo IX was held for nearly a year, but treated with all the honours of his office. He finally made an agreement with Humbert and Robert Guiscard, the contents of which are not known. Now one man in Leo IX's company directly observed these developments and drew his own conclusions. Hildebrandt, cardinal priest of the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, he realised the Normans were not only a military force that could counterbalance any emperor's troops in Italy, but also that they craved the acceptance of the Holy See. So even before Hildebrand ascended the papal throne as Gregory VII did he forge an alliance with Robert Guiscard, which made the latter king of Sicily, and the former the most powerful pope the world had ever seen. We will spend a lot of time talking about Gregory VII in the upcoming episodes, though there will be a lot of opportunity to dive into his background, worldview and deeds as we go along. The only thing to point out here is a grandiose twist of irony. Gregory VII's great reform objective was to end simony, started his career in the chancery of Pope Gregory VI, the one and only Pope who definitely bought the papacy for cold hard cash. Hildebrand followed Gregory VI into exile in Cologne, never officially renounced him, and even chose his papal name after his old simonistic boss. Well, next week we will go back to Germany and look at the remaining years of Henry III's reign, we will find the other strains of history that inevitably drag the Salian regime into a frozen field outside the castle of Canossa. I hope to see you then.